Hello and welcome to the first instalment of season two of Alan and Overy's APAC Corporate Trust and Agency Team series, Trust Us. I am your host, Holly Hart, and today, as it's been a short while since we last caught up, I am looking forward to joining you all on a virtual tour of our region. Today, we are going to receive updates from various colleagues across Asia Pacific as to the markets they're working in and the prevalent products they are seeing come to market. I am delighted to be joined by, first up, Jacqueline Yeap, a partner in our Hong Kong and Greater China practice group to discuss a variety of developments, including the emergence of sustainable bonds in the region, alternative clearing system options in the PRC, and regulatory capital requirements. Next, we will speak with Aloysius Tan, a partner in the capital markets team in Singapore to reflect on the events of 2020 and forecast for the year ahead. And we will follow up with a conversation with Rivan Cipriati, a senior associate at our partner firm, Ginting and Rex Putro, to talk about the restructuring landscape in Indonesia in 2021. To learn more about the types of products coming to market generally, we'll chat with Felipe Decay, a partner in our US law group here in Asia Pacific. To complement this update, we will then move to a quick catch up with Tim Beach, the head of our APAC corporate trust and agency team, to discuss how some of these developments may affect you, our clients. As always, we have a lot of ground to cover, pun intended, and as always, limited time. So let me introduce you to our first guest, Jacqueline Yeap. Hello, Jacqueline. Hi, Holly. Great seeing you. Yes, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are kicking off this tour in Hong Kong and China, which are central to your practice. I understand that there are a number of interesting developments unfolding there at the moment. Let's start with the emergence of sustainable bonds. What can you tell us? Indeed, thank you. So we've seen an evolution in the in terms of firstly the ways um, this could be documented as well as the products. So uh, in terms of documentation, well, um, a prime example is the Hong Kong government where they dipped their toes by issuing green bonds on a standalone basis a couple of years ago, and then they chose to establish a medium term note program earlier this year and issued green bonds off of it. Um, Bank of China, you know, in terms of uh, the, the showcasing the beauty of medium term note programs they've been able to issue a whole slew of um, prod, uh, ESG related products such as green bonds, uh, the first social bonds in Asia which were COVID themed in February last year, blue bonds which were also one of the first in Asia and this is marine related and uh, at the back of um, ICMA coming up with its um, handbook and guidance as regards transition bonds, um, Bank of China also issued the first transition bonds in the world based on the, the handbook and its guidance and this is very much targeted at brown related projects. So, um, you know, it, it's a critical way in which uh, financing can be raised and um, th this is done for climate transition um, related aspects. Now, um, this uh, these type of products are um, what we call purpose related uh, sustainable products, which means that it is not an event of default under the terms and conditions. Um, and there is uh, no penalty if the issuer does not actually uh, um, make use of the proceeds in a way that they had described at the outset. Of course, there are reputational reasons and definitely there would be risk factors included um, in the uh, bond instruments um, disclosure. Um, we have Felipe coming up with uh, performance related uh, instruments. This um, Felipe will add color on and it's a different sort of uh, type of uh, sustainable financing. 
Right, that's really interesting to hear about how this concept of sort of socially responsible investing is diversifying. And that's exciting that we can expect to see more of these possibly coming to the market. Um, moving quickly to our next topic though, I understand there is a demand for new alternative clearing systems in China, namely Macau and or Shanghai, is that correct? Yes, it's an interesting new development. So I think people are familiar with um, the traditional euro bond style where typically it's DTC or euro clearing stream being the clearing systems. But recently we've been involved in issuances where Macau via MOX, MOX, or uh, for instance, the Yulan bond structure, where it's the Shanghai Clearing House in collaboration with Euroclear um, coming to market and uh, assisting intermediaries in facilitating the issuance of international bonds. So it is very important to understand and drill down uh, in terms of what are the differences between the new alternative clearing systems and the requirements versus what we are typically used to in the traditional Eurobond uh, structure. Uh, for instance, pinning down who is able to play the various roles in a deal, for instance, the agent, the common depository, the registrar, how these um, people interact with each other and how they interact with the issuer or investors. Um, also identifying whether there are any um, you know, sort of uh, requirements in terms of the forms, form of notes, whether or not definitive forms are able to be accommodated in, for instance, uh, the Yulan bond structure. Uh, in addition to that, the usual way in which um, communication is done via the clearing systems with the note holders, is this also um, something that the new alternative clearing uh, system structures are also um, foreseeing the communication style? Right. Um, what you said there about the need to identify parties with capacities to be able to give effect to these new structures is actually really interesting and a, a practice point that we can definitely discuss with our clients more going forward. Um, okay, finally, moving this on quickly, we have been keeping tabs here on reg cap requirements. What is the latest from your perspective? Well, um, Hong Kong had put in place regulations a couple of years ago and, you know, Hong Kong banks are working through how it applies to them. PRC regulators had a draft um, consultation late last year. So this continues uh, to be, um, there continues to be heightened scrutiny uh, with respect to capital adequacy. Um, you know, the past couple of years, ANO has been involved in a number of tier two and 81 issuances, which could be by way of preference shares or perpetual bonds. So watch this space. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jacqueline, for all of that insight. Plenty of food for thought for all of us. Um, and I, look, I really look forward to checking in with you again soon and hopefully discussing these uh, and other developments in more detail. So thank you. I'll say goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Now we are taking this tour to Singapore and I am very pleased to be introducing Aloysius Tern, a partner here in our inter international capital markets team. Hello, Aloy. Hi, Holly. Hi. Hi, everyone. Now, you and your team have wide-ranging expertise in debt and equity raisings across Asia-Pacific with a very broad spectrum of products. We're into a new lunar year and deal activity in the region seems to be really ticking along, at least from our perspective. Um, tell us what you're seeing. Um, well, maybe I'll start off by first of, um, I mean, reinforcing the fact that, you know, APAC, uh, quite apart from North Asia, I mean, really is made up of quite a number of jurisdictions at various stages of developments. I mean, some of the key markets that, you know, we uh, have in the region include obviously Singapore, um, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, 
um, and Thailand as well as you know I India. So you know these jurisdictions all you know have been in various stages of uh, market development, and as a result, you know the these sort of deal activities tend to be uh, varied across those regions. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that the central team for 2020 and you know leading into 2021 um, has been COVID. Right, so you know that that clearly has impacted uh, markets and, and the global economy, and um, as a result, you know I think there's an uneven sort of deal spread um, throughout the region. Um, I think in 2020, um, it's fair to say that the deal activity generally were led by high-grade investment, uh, great uh, corporates and names. Um, so I think for the most part of 2020, I think you know. Parties on the line have observed that yes, you know, the market seems to be open. Uh, low interest rate environments mean that you know they're keen to go uh, raise funding uh, during this period. Um, clearly, there's been less high yield corporate uh, name issues uh, simply because you know that that market has been shut from them because of the pressures of 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 the the economic environment. Um, I think leading into 2021, um, it's quite interesting. I mean, clearly investment grade corporates and names uh, continue building a momentum from 2020. Uh, they're still seeking capital. The market is still open to them. There's, um, I think, a, some messaging uh, of a potential interest rate rise uh, uh, throughout uh, this year, but you know, markets certainly remain accessible to them. Um, high yield names have also, I think, come back to the market. Uh, we are seeing um, more uh, names coming out of uh, regions such as Vietnam, Indonesia, um, you know, it's sort of the traditional high yield um, uh, players. So I, I think it's, they're coming back. Uh, we certainly see more activity, and I, I think, um, you know, it, it looks as though it's developing well for this year. Yeah, I think some of our high year colleagues have suddenly found themselves quite busy this week. Um, thank you for that high level overview of the region. What can the markets in these sort of individual jurisdictions that you identified expect in the year ahead? Um, I think for, for Singapore, as I mentioned, I mean, it's clearly one of the, the premier uh, funding jurisdictions in the region, so it's ne never really shut down. I think for the single domestic market, I think uh, interest rates are, are such that you know, it remains very attractive for single or, or Singapore corporates to keep funding uh, because uh, that, that is the primary need. Um, and you know, the, the, the same investment grade names are going out and seeking US dollar funding as well. Um, so I think you will remain uh, very active. Uh, Philippines, which I mentioned, I think in 2020 had an extremely, extremely strong year. Um, I think on a relative basis, at least for the start of 2021, I think um, it, it, it looks more muted, but certainly I think we, we continue to expect uh, corporates and issues coming out of the region. Uh, of note, actually, is for the Philippines, uh, we see more activity also on the equity capital markets. Uh, the IPO scene really there has, has started to ramp up. Um, Vietnam, I think I think it's quite clear that the story is quite clear. It's, it's for 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 good reason. It's been well insulated from the uh, impact of COVID. I think the spread has been low. Um, last year, international deal activity has been muted. But again, this year, um, from our perspective, at least, you know, we see a lot of interest from corporates and investors alike looking uh, to uh, invest in bonds. Um, Indonesia, uh, last year, as we said, fairly muted again. This year, I think the high use space is coming back. Uh, certainly the Indonesian SOEs, uh, all IG names, uh, they're open to fundraising uh, and taking advantage of the interest rate environment. Malaysia, been relatively quiet for a couple of years now, but you know we are hearing lots of activities. I think I think the political stability uh, there is such that, um, you know, and the environment is such that, you know, the corporates are ready to come out. Thailand, 
usual suspects always been accessing the market, I think that will continue. So I think all in all, for the first Q1, Q2, I think the pipeline will be strong and remain strong uh, for cap markets. Well, it sounds as though you and your clients have plenty to keep us and our clients busy in the short term, which is great news for all of us. Um, again, plenty of items to keep in view and talk about in more detail. I look forward to doing that with you again here on Trust Us. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Aloy. Thanks, Holly. Okay, next up, we're going to check in on Indonesia. To do this, I am very happy to be saying a hello to my friend and colleague, Rivan Sabriati, joining us from Jakarta. Hello, Rivan. Hello, Holly. So let's get straight to it. What is happening in Indonesia? Okay, let's take a little bit of a step back to the first quarter of uh, 2020 when the Indonesian government first imposed the lockdown. Uh, some new financing deals collapsed and this gave rise to a number of restructuring deals. Mm -hmm. uh, for Indonesian banks, the incentive is due to the government's policy that allows them to make a reversal of loss provisions from the aging debt just immediately after agreeing to restructure the loan. This is a different uh, with the normal circumstances pre-COVID. Uh, initially, this incentive was imposed only until end of this month, but on December 2020, the government decided to extend it for another year until uh, end of March 2022. Uh, in terms of business sectors, a commodity-based industry is still prone to the liquidity risk, but I think we could all agree that aviation is one of the sectors being hit hardest uh, their exposures are not limited to the lessers and creditors, but also from retail consumers. Uh, to give you an example, uh, one airline company was brought into insolvency proceedings uh, by two different passengers in the span of less than three months, I think. Uh, the two petitions, uh, however, got rejected. Uh, I believe that's due to the private settlement outside the court, but it outlines that the risk of insolvency is real. Uh, recent statistic uh, shows an increase of almost 50% uh, in insolvency cases, be it the PKPU or bankruptcy uh, registered to the Indonesian Commercial Court throughout 2020. Uh, this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, however, has disrupted the court system in a good way. Uh, some courts have adapted quite well uh, by accommodating online hearings in some cases. This is particularly uh, crucial for Indonesian scheme of arrangement process or PKPU, we call it. Uh, which have a statutory period of maximum 270 days. So parties could not afford to lose time and momentum due to delays on the logistic. So that's an advantage. Yes, yeah, it's um, it's certainly interesting to hear of sort of positive changes like that that have come about by facing the challenges of the last 12 months or so and just having to pivot. Um, looking ahead, what will the Indonesian restructuring landscape look like in 2021? Uh, with, with a low absorption of distressed assets offered through the enforcement route, I uh, think financial institutions and also corporations that have edging NPLs on their books will need alternative ways to manage the balance sheets. Uh, it's likely that the loan portfolio trade uh, will take over the spot of more traditional restructuring, be it a plain vanilla transfer of uh, the receivables or securitizations that involves uh, the establishment of SPVs. Uh, the challenge, particularly for financial institutions or SOE, uh, has always been about how to deliver this idea to the relevant authorities in order to get their approval within the transaction timeframe. Uh, but regardless of the restructuring scheme or the execution method chosen in the management of this bad debt, uh, the quality of the due diligence is directly relevant to pricing and is therefore absolutely central to all parties involved. Uh, the focus of DD on NPL accounts typically revolves around transferability, uh, confidentiality, and also restrictions on the nature of lenders. And the, this one is 
very much very important for the transfer to the SPV. From a litigation perspective, we would also look into uh, the availability of original copy of underlying documents because that in itself could make a difference when it comes to enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Checking the availability of the originals also relevant for the insolvency process because all creditors have to present the original for verifications uh, during the registration of claim in PKP when bankruptcy in Indonesia. Uh, this is because uh, the whole process is uh, mainly driven by the curators or administrator and they are the parties nominated by the applicant and also uh, supervised by the judge appointed by the court. Uh, and in order to resolve a successful restructuring in Indonesia through PKPU, the debtor must get support from two classes of creditors, uh, no cross-class cramdown in PKPU process in Indonesia. Uh, but in terms of perspective of cross-border process, uh, precedent shows that the Indonesian obligor that has adequate ties to Singapore may also seek a moratorium protections in reliance on Singapore's Insolvency Restructuring and Dissolution Act. Uh, I think that came into force uh, July last year. Uh, yes, um, and we've actually already seen some examples of Indonesian entities successfully applying for such moratoriums under that Singapore legislative regime. And may I just also reflect upon your comment about sourcing original documents. I think that's uh, something that we uh, clients and lawyers alike are very familiar with. Um, thank you so much, Riven, for another really interesting and lightning conversation. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. For the last leg of our tour, I am very pleased to welcome Felipe Duque, a partner in our US law practice group here in Asia Pacific to share his views. Hello, Felipe. Hi, good afternoon, Holly. Hello to the, to the attendees of this um, seminar. <laughs> um, we are very pleased to have you. Uh, look, our colleagues have just touched on a few product developments in the market, but from your perspective, um, what's the latest in green and sustainability linked products? Sure. So I think um, Jacqueline at the beginning uh, of the podcast did, a, did a, a, an excellent job of kind of setting out uh, what the market is seeing. I think that the interest is really broad across all market participants, um, meaning companies, banks, investors, generally in kind of green or sustainable or ESG bonds. Um, so I won't re repeat that, but a, a couple of notable trends that um, I think we're seeing across the market as a whole is um, with this increased um, interest, um, there's been this debate for a few years now around the greenium, right? Greenium, is there any difference from a pricing perspective, from an economics perspective, um, between issuing a conventional bond and issuing some type of ESG flavor bond? Uh, historically, I think the answer had been no. These were kind of cute things that law firms like to claim that this is the first of, or, <laughs> right? Don't give but, away our secret, come on. <laughs> but, but, but when it came to kind of principal and the cost of, of debt, it was pretty much the same. I think we're starting to see a change in 2021. Um, that's what we're hearing, at least from the market. It is, there are now pockets of the investment community whose investment, investment mandates restrict the types of investments or require them to invest in certain types of instruments. Um, and by accessing those additional pockets of demand, um, we are seeing better book building and pricing dynamics and lower cost of capital for issuers who are willing to um, issue sustainable bonds. So I think that's that's a notable development. We'll see if it, that trend continues. Um, the second one, particularly around the, pro the product side, is the emergence of uh, sustainability sustainability linked bonds. Mm -hmm. So the difference between these SLBs, I'll call them, and uh, green or uh, social or, or blue bonds, other types of kind of ESG flavor bonds, is that the latter um, ha have a use of proceeds that is restricted 
to uh, a specific social purpose, let's call it, right? So you must apply the proceeds to a, a particular pro uh, project um, or, or green focused um, purpose. Issuers don't necessarily like that too much. Obviously, mm -hmm. um, the beauty of general corporate purposes is that they can be applied for whatever the business needs of the company are. Um, that's the key structural advantage of an SLB. Uh, the, the sustainability link bond doesn't restrict the use of proceeds to anything. Um, mm -hmm. The proceeds can be whatever the company wants. Instead, the kind of the green dynamic is uh, an SLB will have a particular KPI. Um, the key performance indicator is required, is required to be relevant and core to the business of the company. So for example, we did, um, um, uh, so, so sorry, let me finish that thought, a, a KPI and within that KPI, which is the broad measure, a very narrow targeted SPT or sustainability uh, performance target. And that is a scientific measurable kind of empiric thing that can be measured out in the real world. <clears throat> so for example, we did um, the first SLB out of India uh, two or three weeks ago, and there it was a cement company. Um, their KPI generally was emissions. Their very narrow, narrow SPT was, um, carbon dioxide emissions per ton of cementitious material produced. So they go out, Got it. <laughs> right? So super hyper-focused, measurable. Um, they're required to have a framework. They're, they're required to have a third-party verification of, of um, the, the progress. The kicker is the way this works is if, so you set the target at the initial, uh, at the issue date of the bond, let's say it's a seven-year bond. The promise that the company makes to the market is if, in year five of seven of this bond, we don't hit the SPT that we have specified, there will be some consequence. The consequence for most of these SLBs has been a step up in the coupon. So a 25 or 50 basis point step up in the annual coupon. So obviously there is a very real consequence. It's kind of the, fl the flip side of the greenium. You're getting a pricing advantage from issuing bonds that are generally green and uh, in this market in, in mm -hmm. of interest to this market the flip side is if you're issuing a sustainability linked bond and you don't meet the objective that you've set um, you get hit with a step up in the coupon so uh, that, that's a specific product that um, uh, only emerged last year um, in italy with enel um, and now we have started to see in about a half a dozen um, companies uh, out of asia start to put out these uh, slbs Right. That's um. Look, this is this is really interesting, Felipe, and I think we might need to um delve into this this deeper. But I'm conscious of time, or maybe I just come and ask you for my own personal lecture <laughs> on this topic. Um, I'm going to uh thank you very much and and say goodbye. Thanks for a great end to our tour. Great pleasure. Thanks. Look, I know that was a lot of information on a wide range of topics. So to distill some of the key takeaways for you, our clients, we're now joined by Tim Beach, the head of our APAC Corporate Trusted Agency teams. Hello, Tim. Hi, Holly. Look, we have covered quite a bit of ground as promised with our previous guests, our great colleagues. Um, in your view, did anything specifically jump out as being particularly pertinent for our clients? Yeah, thanks, Holly. Um, three points, I think, from, from me today. The first one, uh, as we heard from Jacqueline earlier, was the development of the ULAN bond structure. That strikes me as particularly interesting because, as Jacqueline said, we're all very familiar with how uh, offshore bonds are issued from China at the moment out into uh, Euroclear and, and Clearstream. 
that obviously is a structure that has the potential to disrupt that for our trust and agency clients moving to uh, an onshore settlement with 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 the offshore trading in in Euroclear and Clearstream obviously that has a particularly um, notable potential impact on on the common depository aspect of actually holding the, uh, the the notes for uh, the ICSDs which which would simply disappear if the bonds were structured uh, in a dematerialized form through the Shanghai Clearinghouse. So interesting to follow where that goes and see whether that is a, a, a future direction of the market or, or, or one-off, but you know, we'll, we'll find that out in due course. Um, also worth though mentioning in, in that connection with that, um, ORCID bonds, which uh, as, as, as many of our listeners may have heard, it's proposed similar new structure actually in Singapore where uh, CDP, the Singapore Clearing System, is going to also enter into an arrangement with Euroclear, whereby notes will get uh, issued into CDP and then traded in Euroclear uh, across a bridge in the same way as the ULAM bonds. So it's interesting to see these uh, new structures, you know, Euroclear reaching out to domestic clearing systems and looking to, to, to shake up the way that we've been doing things you know, for a long time. So you know, who knows, we, we may well see uh, more of those types of structure in, in other markets uh, to come over the, the coming months and years. So we will watch that with interest. The second point is um, one that also Aloysius touched on, um, and uh, and that's the return of high yield in, in ASEAN particularly. We saw very, very little high yield issuance during 2020. Um, a lot of other issuance carried on, but the high yield issuance really dropped off a cliff. So great to see that back. We were very lucky to be joined by Felipe uh, for this today, because I know he's, uh, he's, he's underwater with the amount of new deals that, that he's been doing. Uh, so, so I think we yeah, are really positive to see that aspect of our, our, our markets coming back for uh, hopefully a, a good run through 2021. And then the final point I wanted to touch on um, is, is something we haven't touched on um, so far today. Obviously, yeah, we've mainly been focused on the good news, if I could look at it that way, and, and what's coming in our markets over, over 2021. Um, it would be a bit remiss of me, though, not to uh, talk about defaults again, because we remain extremely busy with, with China defaults. And to give some context to that, in 2020, there were about $7 billion worth or so of Chinese bonds that, that defaulted throughout the year. In January of, of this year, 2021, uh, about $2.7 billion worth of bonds defaulted already. And uh, you know, since then, we've had other big names like HNA Group, uh, China Fortune Land, all defaulting. And we know there is a, a, a debt maturity of about $100 billion worth of offshore bonds to happen uh, during 2021. It does appear that we are in for a continued run of, of, of significant offshore defaults. The, the point, one interesting point around that, obviously, you know, it used to be assumed that if you were lending money to SOEs, there might be an implicit state guarantee, uh, even if that wasn't in the documentation. With some of the big SOEs that we've seen default over, over the last few months, you know, clearly that that's, shouldn't be assumed any longer. Having said that, you know, we don't really think there's going to be a, a, a default crisis in, in China offshore debt as you know, the authorities in China are, are pretty good at, at managing these situations. However, uh, you know, for the trustees and the bondholders that do get caught in, in these defaults as they happen, and you know, we predict there are going to be a few more of them, it's likely to be a, you know, a busy and an expensive time working through the, the restructurings or the enforcement proceedings that are inevitably going to follow. So that, that was it from uh, for me, Holly. Thank you.
Excellent. Um, busy times ahead uh, on both sides of the equation. Um, thank you as always for the insight, Tim. Much appreciated. I can look forward to uh, continuing to discuss these sorts of topics with our clients. Okay, well, that brings us to the end. Um, in a slight departure from our normal structure, we heard a little bit about a lot of topics today to kick off the season, and that will certainly warrant more in-depth discussions in future episodes. If any particular topic was of interest to you, please do reach out to us via email so that we can prioritise bringing that content to you as soon as possible. Many thanks to everyone that contributed today. My colleagues, Jacqueline, Alloy, Riven, Felipe, and Tim, as always, for their insights. Um, comments, questions, feedback are always warmly welcomed here. Please do share this episode as a podcast with your colleagues and encourage them to reach out too if there's anything they would like to us to address on future episodes. That's it from me. Thank you all so much for listening and we look forward to speaking with you all again very soon. Cheers.